LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Adkins. And once again, uh, at least for the time being, I'm here I'm here by my onesie. So I actually, I'm not here by myself. I have a great guest today, uh, Brady Boyd. Okay, so if you don't know uh, who Brady Boyd is, he is the pastor of New Life Church out in Colorado Springs. He has a bunch of unique perspective uh, on all kinds of different issues. Uh, we just discovered, or I just discovered, rediscovered, um, that we had a connection through uh, a mutual friend uh, named Rich Hurst, uh, who was at McLean and who also uh, was out uh, with you for a little bit there in Colorado, I think, um, at least in that area. And so, you know, it's been... Uh, it's crazy over the course of time, the different connections you have. And if you just talk to another pastor long enough, I bet you know somebody he knows. Um, but knowing who you know, I now have even more perspective into uh, to where you've been and what you've been going through. So uh, talk to us a little bit about yourself. Tell us uh, your story, your leadership story, more or less. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's so good to be with you, Todd. And I've been at New Life Church now for a dozen years. And I came here from Gateway Church. I was there with Robert Morris in Dallas, Fort Worth, kind of minding my own business. And out of the blue, New Life Church was going through a horrific uh, scandal. They were going through a crisis. And they called me and asked me if I would come and uh, be their senior pastor. I said yes. I don't know why I said yes. People asked me if I was brave, and I think I was more naive than brave, but I stepped into that, and then um, the church just went through a the darkest season that it could possibly go through after that. We had a shooting on our campus on my 100th day as senior pastor, mm-hmm. and quite honestly, uh, Todd, I thought that I had been called to a new life to be a hospice pastor, to give a once great church an honorable funeral. And to my surprise, in the last 12 years, uh, we've had a resurrection story. And, I, and I'm not trying to overuse that word because truly New Life Church should be like a big used car lot right now. Instead, <laughs> uh, God has rebirthed it. And we are in the middle of, of a season of thriving again. We are doing more good work in our city than I think we have ever done in the history of the church. And it's just been such a a magnificent, remarkable story to be a part of. I think the people here are fantastic. Uh, We are, I've been married 30 years to the same woman. uh, We just became empty nesters at my house and uh, pretty excited about that. Both my kids moved out. They took a dog with them and they, they moved out to go to college. And for the last three months, uh, it has been unbelievable. And my wife's not excited about being an empty nester, but I am. And I'm pretty <laughs> excited about the whole thing. So that's the season of life I'm in. I'm 52 years old. I'm, in, I'm, I'm really at probably at halftime of my ministry career and just having a great time in Colorado. Okay. So talk to me, uh, talk to us really about that time, uh, you know, you said you've been there for 12 years, obviously, um, it, it started off, uh, very rocky, uh, in that you came over and, and, um, really came into a situation where you had, uh, 
uh, a popular pastor, a known pastor who who had a failure, and then you come in, take that over, and then you have something like that shooting happen. And when did it when did it start to turn? And what have been some key milestones from over the last you know twelve years? And what or who you know had the the major part in that? Well, that's a it's a that's a great question. I, I've told pastors for the last twelve years, and I, I'm really more convinced of this now than ever, that when you teach your church to pray, and when you build really authentic biblical community inside your church, that it can almost survive anything. And I took to to the credit of the former pastor, that was already in place at New Life Church mm-hmm. before scandal and the shooting happened. Because uh, what really uh, helped us survive and thrive is that there was a deep, deep culture of prayer, congregational prayer. And there was this deep sense of community. There were hundreds of small groups that were thriving and flourishing in the church. And I, I really believe that those two things, that because they were knit into the fabric of the congregation, that when the darkest days came to new life, Uh, To my surprise, thousands of people decided to stay. I mean, I've asked people for the last 12 years, I I, I bump into a congregation member and they tell me, yes, I've been around New Life, uh, you know, for 22 years or 28 years. And my first question is always, why did you stay? And they say, well, Pastor Brady, this is where my church family, this is my church home. Where else would I go? And I'm just telling you, when that gets really established inside a congregation, the local church is not as fragile as we have imagined. Now, I think your local church is very fragile if you don't have a culture of prayer, if you don't have really biblical, uh, authentic uh, a community built inside your church. And I think it is fragile. But when prayer and community are really at, in, the, in the core of who you are, the church can literally walk through the valley of the shadow of death and come out on the other side. And that's really the story of New Life Church. And uh, I I've now feel like I've been given permission uh, just to uh, not mess it up. I mean, that's really what God told me to do. Just come into this place. I've done something deep here. Don't mess it up. And so that's been my ministry mandate for the last 12 years is to make sure that the church keeps those two things as a part of its culture. So, Okay, so if I'm, you know, listening to this, uh, a lot of our listeners are pastors and church leaders, of course. And so if I'm trying to listen through uh, maybe a slightly different lens, but also glean something from you, you know, hey, I haven't, while I've had some, don't get me wrong, I've had some issues, I've had some, you know, borderline scandals along the way, but we're relatively unscathed, we're just just kind of an established church that, you know, maybe has has lost gas or plateaued or or whatever. What would you say to that pastor out of what you've learned uh, from that? Because, you know, revitalization is a really hot topic right now, which I just think is basically church growth repackaged somewhat. Um, I agree. But, <laughs> but um, it's the same stuff, guys. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> sorry. Um Talk a little bit about that then. Um, you know, how did that happen or what would you say to them? Well, I can tell you that uh, a lot of churches, when they go through pain, like a pastor leaving, a scandal, a moral failure, something traumatic happened inside the church. It's, 
I think the temptation a lot of times for pastors is to stay focused on that way too long. Now, I, there's a balance here. I believe the church has to heal because if you don't allow a church to heal, then they're going to take their pain with them into the future, right? So we allowed a good stretch of time at New Life for healing, for counseling, for us just being the local church. We actually, on purpose, turned our attention inside the church walls because we realized that we were broken. But there was a moment where I believe in every church where you have to admit that we're healed and we're, we're, we're never going to be fully healed. We're never going to be 100 percent healthy. However, the city needs our church. And I remember uh, talking to my elders and saying, I believe it's time for us to begin asking a, a big question in our city. Where are the greatest areas of pain in our city that are not being met? And my elders released me to go. And for about two years, I, I, I met with the mayor, the police chief, the fire chief, anyone that would meet with me, I would buy them coffee, buy them lunch. And my question to them was, where is our city hurting? What are the areas of pain in our city, our county, and how can I help? And after a couple of years, uh, we discovered uh, several places that were being uh, the gaps of care in our city. And I believe that that's the moment where our church really became revitalized. I believe that once we establish a new mission, and it's not a new mission, it's actually the mission of the church for the last 2,000 years, is to be salt and light, a witness, uh, light of the world in your city. But I told our church, I said, listen, we at the time, I think we were $26 million in debt. We were Our attendance was in decline. Our giving was in decline because of all the craziness that had happened at our church. And I said to them, I said, we can, either, we can either decide to stay focused on our pain for the next 10 years, or we can actually turn our attention out and we can take the healing that we've received and take that out into the city and, and see if God won't bless it. I knew God would bless it. And at the moment we started doing that, Todd, this is not, I'm not trying to paint a picture like there's some kind of secret sauce or magic formula for every church. I just know that for us, our story is that when we turned our attention, took that that place of healing out into this, the pain points of our city, something began to happen. Our giving started coming back. People began to give that were not giving because they saw the mission of the church. I saw engagement uh, accelerate. People begin to engage not only outside the church, but inside the church. I just believe it, 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 uh, it rebirthed something inside of us that was missing. And our church then... And I, uh, we're, we've never, I don't think we've ever been uh, more than seven or 8% growth in a, in a particular year, but we've seen uh, manageable uh, growth every single year since we turned our attention outside the church. And, it, and now, by the way, that attracts people into your church that are looking to give their lives away. And a lot of millennials begin, uh, you know, we can uh, talk about millennials, but millennials, if, there, if there's no sense of activity and justice inside your church, they lose interest real quick. And I believe it, it began to revitalize the young leaders inside of our church. And we began uh, to see just uh, miraculous things happen. Uh, and it's the reason our church is thriving today, in my opinion. That's so good. Well, thank you uh, for that backstory. And I just wanted people to understand your your context and really get... Um, who you are as a pastor and a leader, even before before we get started. One of the things I will mention is you do. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, 
you you are an author of numerous books. I'm sure some of those will come out uh, during the podcast. Uh, a new one is remarkable. Living faith worth taking uh, talking about. Sorry, talking about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> taking about. That's no, hilarious. Talking like about. That. Hey, it's the afternoon. <laughs> Got to give me a break. <laughs> no, you're old copy. I like it. <laughs> um, you can take it too. Uh, take it with you wherever you go. How about that? I mean, if you take it and don't pay for it, I'm not coming to bail you out of jail. But however, if you want to take it, that's between you and God. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So uh, here's the thing. Uh, who We want to know who are you currently learning from? All right. Well, first of all, I think every leader should be a learner. And I love that that's the first question. So I just got through reading of several books, and I'll just tell you who I'm reading, because when people ask me that question, I invariably say, well, let me just tell you what I'm reading, and I'll tell you where I'm learning. I just finished a book by Eugene Peterson. It hasn't even come out yet. It's called A Month of Sundays. Uh, I love anything Eugene Peterson has written. I've met with him at his house. I was so sad when he passed away. Um, he is an icon, in my opinion. Uh, in uh, the Western church. So I just finished a book by him called A Month of Sundays. I just finished Scott Saul's book, who is there in Nashville area with you. I just uh, finished his book, uh, Irresistible Faith. I I thought that was a really good book. And I like Scott. I think Scott's got some really good insight into culture. A book that is not a Christian book necessarily, but a book that I just finished reading because I'm fascinated about American community is a book called by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. It's a bestseller. It's written um, by a professor at Harvard, and he talks about uh, why uh, the American culture has disintegrated, especially in the, in the areas of community. And the book is called Bowling Alone. And it's about, uh, it's like 500 pages, but it's a fascinating read uh, for pastors like myself who are trying to understand why people are having a hard time finding community. A leadership book that I, I just finished as well is a book by Todd Bolzinger called Canoeing the Mountains. It's been out for a few years, but I'm kind of a late adopter uh, on the book. Um, I found it to be pretty good. Uh, he's a PhD from uh, Fuller. Um, anyway, I think it was fantastic. I found it to be pretty insightful called Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. Uh, I, I listened to... Uh, a, a friend of mine who I'm learning a lot from right now is Derwin Gray, a pastor in Charlotte. He, uh, he played uh, pro football for six or seven years. He's now leading a very multi-ethnic church in the Charlotte area. I'm learning from him. I think he's helping me understand culture and multi-ethnic church in a way that I've not really understood it in the past. Um, I listened to N.T. Wright. I listened to a lot of, you know, I like, I like theology podcasts. Um, uh, so that's where I'm learning from. I just try to stay, I try to have something I'm reading, like a, something theological, something in leadership, something that touches on social issues. I'm trying to keep a pretty fluid uh, uh, group of books in front of me and podcasts in front of me that help me. I don't want to, I don't want to get uh, locked into an echo chamber. I really want to read books that I disagree with. And I want to read books that that help me expand a little bit and just help me as a leader. So that's that's the stuff I'm reading right now. So okay, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, you know, I would say that's that's super important too. You're not going to learn anything new uh, reading the same people everybody else are reading, uh, at least in your in your tribe or your sphere of denominational life or <clears throat> fill in the blank. Um, so. 
how do you actually do that? How do you decide uh, what to read? And then when I'm reading something that is um, that I have to sift, how do you do that? Well, I, I, I know that, in, in my opinion, this may be a bit controversial, and I'm not trying to pick a fight with anybody, but I do feel that one of the great uh, issues of the American church right now is that we've become very tribal. And it's very hard for us to understand viewpoints from people who are not a part of our political tribe or our, our theological tribe, our denominational tribe. And for me as a 52-year-old leader who's leading a very diverse church, I, I'm pastoring in Colorado, so a lot of red and blue in my congregation, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians uh, in my congregation. I realize that I have to understand viewpoints that, are, that I may not hold as my own, but I want to have empathy for their viewpoint. I'm trying to understand, uh, and I tend to be a, a conservative voter, but I so I tend to read books that I want to understand why people who who call themselves Christ followers are uh, aligned politically different than me, and I'm, so I'm just trying to understand. Uh, and I so I read it uh, with a, and my prayer is Lord, show me what I need to see, help me understand the people that I'm pastoring. These people are sitting in my congregation. You've brought them to my church. I want to be a good steward of them. I want to help disciple them. And, and so I, I go into those books uh, looking for something that I've never thought about before. And it's been very helpful. And it hasn't, a lot of people are concerned that, well, if my pastor reads that, that he's going to compromise his convictions. Well, actually, it, that's not true. My convictions are as, uh, as foundational and solid as they've ever been in my life. But it helps me understand the people I'm preaching to if I, if I can see their viewpoint. And I can contextualize the gospel to them in a way that they will hear it and understand it. And that's my goal, right? Our goal is to make disciples. And so if you're going to make disciples, you better understand the people that are listening to your sermons. And under. And so that's, that's my goal. That's, that's how I do that. That's why I do that. And I read stuff. And, I'll, and quite honestly, I read a lot of stuff that I don't tweet about. I don't put it on Instagram because, it, you know, it would, it would unsettle people or it might causing them to think that somehow I'm compromising, but that's not why I'm doing it. And I think pastors need to read outside their own echo chambers or they'll only reach the people that agree with them. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. And I think a lot of pastors, uh, and I, quite honestly, I'm not trying to be mean about it, but I think it's lazy. Uh, all we read is stuff that we agree with. I mean, that's really not learning. Uh, so here's my goal, Todd, is I try to read something that aggravates me about once a month. <laughs> if I, I just want it to really aggravate me. And then my question is, why did that aggravate me? Why am I mad about that? And and it's been healthy for me to do that. Very cool. All right. So uh, when it comes to, you know, leading your team right now, what is your main point of emphasis? Well, we, we, our model, the way we, uh, we, we're a multi-site church. We have, we're about to start our seventh location, all of our, and we have three different languages. So I have a Mandarin speaking congregation. I have a Spanish speaking congregation, and we're about to launch our fifth English speaking congregation. So seven congregations at all those congregations. We, we don't use a video model. We actually have a live preaching, teaching teams at every location. 
So the main point of emphasis for me right now is to make sure that we uh, are continuing to raise up communicators on our team. And that takes a tremendous amount of work. It's actually easy. It would be easier for me to do video models and just hire campus pastors who are not that interested in preaching. But our model requires us to really invest in pulpit communicators. And so we are, uh, that's our main point of emphasis right now is recruiting, training, equipping people who carry the weight of scriptures, who are willing to preach. Uh, uh, a lot of young communicators are looking for a healthy team to be a part of. And this is not me soliciting people to call me, but it is certainly I'm always on the lookout, both inside my congregation and in my realm of influence for young men and women who want to be a part of a healthy collegial study type environment and where they can really have um, room to preach and teach and room to make some mistakes and room to hone their craft uh, in, a, in a team environment. So that's really the big point of emphasis for us right now. And it's requiring a lot of energy and a lot of work from all of us. So uh, talk a little bit more about what that, you know, looks like from a day-to-day or week-to-week kind of a, a, a rhythm because, you know, as as a, a senior pastor and then also as a church staff, there, there are these regular rhythms that happen. And so for some people, they would say, oh, I don't know how I could fit that in. That sounds that sounds great because uh, there's some people that I know that um, we've, we've actually helped to move from a multi-site model that was video-based to one that was alive uh, in person and some cases it was, hey, can you help us transition these to spin off as individual church plants? And so, uh, but I do think there are a lot of people that would say, oh, I'd be much more open to multi-site if I knew how to do what you're talking about, because that sounds like, you know, something I can give my life to or uh, lay down that that type of development um, strategy that may ultimately result either in a, a plant down the road or um, a guy who's very well trained and and now can go out and continue to either lead at that church or at your church or another church and, and I, I, I what I when we when we started this model about seven years ago Todd the we I decided that I could not add that much more to my plate. So I just began to look for places that, that I was already studying for the sermon. And I decided to include a lot of people into that process. So for us on Tuesday mornings, I meet with our primary communicators at all of our locations. And we actually, uh, we preach through books of the Bible primarily at New Life. And so we, we have a text. I bring some rough notes in for the group and uh, we all begin to study the text together. And they're a pretty diverse group uh, that I study with. And I've told other senior pastors that because I engage a group of people early into the study process for myself, it actually cuts my study time down about 10 hours a week because they're bringing up ideas that I would have stumbled upon and on my own. I would have, I would have found it uh, if I had studied on my own, but they bring it up to me in a 30-minute or one-hour meeting I went, oh, yes, I, you know, they just remind me of things or, or, or trigger some thinking in me. And so what I've done is I just allow uh, this, this mentoring process, this equipping process to come alongside my, my normal study flow. And so there are times when we're all studying separately and then we, we submit our notes to one another at the end of the week. 
Uh, so the goal is for us not to all preach the same sermon, but our goal is to have a unity of thought so that in whatever congregation you end up at in New Life, you may not hear the same viewpoint of that text, but you're going to, there's going to be a spirit of unity uh, among us, and you're going to hear the same spirit, the same uh, basic ideas, big ideas are going to be the same, but we allow for nuance uh, in storytelling and uh, obviously illustrations. And in the in the sermon is not a cookie cutter at every location. So there's a lot of personality that's allowed to be expressed. One of the things I say to people is I have no problem with franchise model of church. In other words, if you go to one uh, campus, that campus is going to look exactly like every other campus. The franchise model works because it's easy to manage and it, and, it, and it's and it's built to scale. So you can have 30 of those, right? Uh, some churches have, are up to 15, 20 campuses right now. It's insane how many campuses can be replicated when you use the franchise model. So I have no trouble with that. Our model is more of a family model. And the way I tell pastors is um, my kids all share my convictions as a family, but they have very different personalities. And and that's what our, if you go to one of our campus, our congregations is what we call them, you're going to hear the same convictions, but the personality of the of the service and the personality of the sermon is going to reflect the teacher that's on the stage because that's what a family does. That's good. That's good. All right. Let's move to our third question, and that is, other than the spiritual disciplines, what is May one thing that you have to do every day, maybe two things. Okay, well, man, this may surprise you, but I think that a lot of pastors are struggling because they're not sleeping well. And I, I know this sounds, I mean, it sounds a bit weird, but I think <laughs> the best thing we can do is get a really good night's sleep. I, I, I know at 52 years old, I have a lot of energy uh, I, and I have a lot to do. But I'm just better when I go to bed early and get up on time. And I have, I, I really guard my sleep. I, I just really believe that God gives us the gift of rest. And I believe in Sabbath. I, obviously, I mean, I really, really uh, vehemently defend uh, my two days off. I really try to make sure that those two days are, are vehemently uh, guarded because I know how important they are. But also think just a regular night's sleep uh, will do more. Think about how bad you feel. In fact, they said that I just read this recent study that pastors who uh, don't get enough sleep, it's like coming to work drunk. It's like it's it's like uh, your brain is not functioning properly. It's literally like having uh, alcohol in your system when you show up at work by not allowing your brain to have enough sleep. And we uh, and I just think how. Think how better your day goes when you've had seven or eight hours of sleep, when you wake up refreshed, you go to work. You, I just think that is a big deal. And I, I'm, I'm beginning to do more and more research on it. I wrote a book a few years ago called Addicted to Busy, where I did some research on this. But now, even at 52 years old, I'm believing that the best thing I can do for my staff and my congregation is to show up at work well-rested and uh, so that my brain is at full capacity. And I'm not smart enough to show up at work with half capacity. <laughs> I mean, I have to show up at full capacity to do well. And I think a good night's sleep is the key to that. That's true. Otherwise, you uh, you talk about faith worth taking about instead of talking about. 
like I just did yes. earlier. All right. Uh, any <laughs> other, is there any other thing that you would say well, besides I, sleep? Yeah. You know, I think, uh, I, I also think that, um, making sure that you eat well and work out, all those things are important. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of really trying to get my body back in shape. I'm losing weight right now. I'm working out. But I, I do also think that uh, I was I was talking to a pastor recently. He's about 15 years older than I am, and he just said uh, that I thought it was fa- fantastic what he said. So I'm going to steal it. Uh, but he said just making sure that uh, you that you look for the areas in your life that are discouraging you, and being aware of discouragement, uh, mm-hmm. and not letting discouragement linger very long. Uh, recognizing the source of that discouragement, and making sure that you're around people. Uh, around uh, in an environment where you, number one, we can encourage people, but also that there are some people who encourage us, and that we're that we don't allow discouragement to stay uh, embodied in us very long. Right. And I thought, you know, that's a good idea. And I know what the tension is. I don't want people that are just cheerleaders around me or just say yes to me all the time to make me feel good. But uh, who who do we have in our life who are genuinely? encouraging us. I mean, like authentically, they care about us. They love us and they'll tell us the truth. But even when they tell us the truth, they're encouraging us with the truth. And I think that's a huge part. I think a lot of pastors right now are burning out because they just allow discouragement to stay in their heart way too long. Every church must be equipped to respond well in the initial stages when learning about instances of sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. And that's why the Southern Baptist Convention, Lifeway, and ERLC partner together to create Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused. This training curriculum consists of a handbook, 13 uh, enhanced video sessions that brings together top experts from various fields to help volunteers and leaders understand and implement the best practices for handling a variety of abuse scenarios at church, school, or in your ministry. You can access these videos and this training and this book all for free at churchcares.com. Okay, so uh, talk to me a little bit about what leadership in your home looks like. I know you uh, you mentioned earlier that you've recently gone through a transition, so maybe what has that looked like um, over the years and, and what leadership looks like in your home now? Well, 12 years ago when I came on staff at New Life Church as a senior pastor, I announced to the congregation that I was going to work about 50 hours a week and I was going to be home four or five nights a week. And I actually on my calendar, I have go home to be with Pam and the kids. I put it on my calendar in those first few years. I don't, I don't have to do it now, but in those first three or four years, uh, I would put that on my calendar so that when people would ask me to come do things on my day off, like, Hey Brady, come over and dedicate our whatever, you know, if, if I could, I would do it. And as a pastor, I know I need to be interrupted and, and I, I can't always, you know, choose the convenience of my schedule because pastoral work doesn't allow for that. But uh, always, but I, I did find that there were things that I just needed to say no to. And I would say to the people that would invite me to come do things that were not necessary. I would say to them, that sounds really interesting, but I actually have plans already on my calendar. My calendar is already full that night. And on my calendar, it was go home and be with them and the kids. <laughs> because I think sometimes if we don't make that a priority, then 
there's always going to be something luring us away from what's important. And I said to the church when they hired me, I said, at the end of my career here at New Life, I do want to be known as a really good pastor, but I want to be known first as a really good husband and a really good father. And that's going to require me uh, to spend a lot of time with Pam and the kids at the expense of spending time with some of you from time to time. And they all cheered. And, And I'm so grateful that I'm in a church culture that allows me to prioritize my home that I'm always that I think a lot of pastors are giving the leftovers of their time and energy to their spouse and their kids. And I, and I, and I, I've actually, you know, obviously the church world will require all of us to uh, sacrifice uh, to be a part a pastor, but it doesn't always require continual sacrifice. And that's, that's the thing I want to challenge pastors is that uh, while there are sacrificial times, weddings, funerals, birth of babies, hospital visits, those things cannot always be predicted, uh, but I think if we're always choosing the church over our family, then it's almost like the church has become our mistress. And long term, that does not help. I, I'm right now helping two different churches, pretty significant churches. Uh, they both have lost their leaders. They're going through absolute crisis right now. And in both cases, the reason their pastor had failure was because they went too fast for too long and did not know to say no and take a day off. It was that, it's that simple. Mm. That's really good advice. So now looking at a more recent transition, you said, Hey, we're, we're now empty nesters. What does that look like? It's fantastic. And I, <laughs> I mean, I, I felt like I've retired from a season of parenting. Now I'm always going to be a parent and parenting never ends. But I felt like my kids moved out They're They both are in church. They're working. They are in college, full-time college students. They're on a path to both finish their college degrees. They, they, they live locally. So they're there every Sunday. They're right there with Pam and I in the church. They love the church. They're involved in the church. It, I think it's a reward. And I, I listen, I don't think I'm a fantastic parent. I think I have really fantastic kids that made me look like a fantastic dad at times. But I do also think that there are seasons when your kids begin to flourish that actually has allowed me uh, more energy and more time now to give to the church. So while I sacrificed a lot for the sake of my kids up to this point, now because they are out flourishing and doing well, I actually have more time for the church. And so over time, it will balance itself out. And uh, I, I feel like I can say yes to some things now that I used to, I could not say yes to when my kids were little. And it's been joyful. It's been really a happy time for us as a family. Sad for my wife, you know, because the kids have moved out of the house. And But we are doing well. And it's a chance for Pam and I to really be friends again, like like really depend on one another. It's like we're, it's like we're a young married couple again because we're the only two people in the house. And to our surprise and to our delight, we actually like each other after 30 years of marriage. We're still friends. And that's a real joy for sure. How did you make sure that that was going to happen? I mean, well, I tell, I tell married couples that people, I tell married couples that can you, I want to make sure that I say it right. But I tell married couples that they need to have consistent, unhurried conversations with one another. That date night cannot be a management meeting that that actually needs to be unhurried conversations. And Pam and I have just been really diligent in our married life to be friends and to talk like friends, to 
to make sure that we went on trips together, that that we go for walks together, that we sit and talk, that we don't feel rushed around one another, and to treat each other the way we would treat our friends. I mean, if uh, I have some close friends, and if I always, every time I was around them, I just wanted to talk about our calendar and when the next meeting was, well, that's not a good friendship. And sometimes we treat our spouse worse than we treat our close friends when when actually we treat our we should treat our spouse like our friend. And so that's been that's been a joy for us. That's good. All right. We're into our last question, which is what would you tell your 20-year-old self about preparing for leadership? Wow. Well, I would first of all say um, you don't have to prove anything. If God calls you, then God will promote you. Be completely okay with being hidden. There are so many 20-year-olds right now, and I, I pastor a whole church full of them, that want to be famous. They're looking for platform. They're looking for notoriety. And if they're not famous by the time they're 30, they think they've been a failure. But I remind them that Jesus himself uh, had 30 years of basically anonymity before he ever came on the scene. And that all, there are stories throughout the Bible of hiddenness. David was on the backside of the desert tending his father's sheep. Well, he was hidden. Moses had 40 years in the desert where he was hidden from sight. I would say to my 20-year-old self, don't quit striving to be recognized all the time. Allow private work to go down deep into your heart so that when God chooses to elevate you into the public, if there is ever a time in your future, Brady, I would say this to my third person self, Brady, if there's ever going to be a time where God chooses to put you to put you on the stage in front of thousands of people, I want there to be so much hidden work that I've done in your heart, so much character that I have formed in your heart in those hidden places that the public platform will not corrupt you and will not derail you because of how deeply I've done work in you uh, in those hidden places. So I, I wish in my 20s that I had allowed uh, for more silence and for more solitude. And I, and I wish in my 20s that I had allowed wiser, older people to really shape me and form me because uh, I made a lot of mistakes because I got, I got a platform to preach and teach really quickly. And I wish now that I'd had a longer season of quiet and instruction before that public platform came to me. And I, I would say that to all 20-somethings right now. Do not despise the days of silence because God can only do holy work in you when we're quiet and settled in his presence. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, taking time to have this conversation with me today. And uh, just thanks for all the, the books you've written. You've written several. Uh, the most recent one, Remarkable, Living a Faith Worth Talking About, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which just dropped last month. And I uh, just want people to know that they can check that out. And Anything else you would want them to uh, take a look at or, or know about? Well, I, I thank you, Todd, for having me on. I, I would say uh, find someone older, wiser, that's been further in the ministry than you. Find someone with some gray hair and, and take them to lunch, buy their lunch, and ask them 10 questions just like they're asking me. I love these conversations. Todd, I thank you for all your work you're doing. You're doing such fantastic work, equipping, helping leaders around the world. So thank you. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Tune in next time.